Well, good morning, church family. It's good to see all of you this weekend. Let's pray together. Almighty God of Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, we thank you so much for today. Thank you for this place, this sanctuary that you give us, where we can gather together uh, in freedom to worship you in a country that um, men and women have died to preserve the freedom of religion, that we can gather here together, Lord, to celebrate who you are as our eternal God, Father, Son, and Spirit. This morning, I just pray, Lord, that uh, as the word is preached, that your spirit would be present powerfully uh, in us and through us and in this place, uh, that our hearts would receive it well, that the soil of our hearts would be cultivated, um, and we would go forward from this place, not on a dead-end street serving ourselves, but that we would go forth serving you, God. We pray these things in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. Well, we are in our series on Ecclesiastes, and uh, as I was studying this week and preparing, uh, realizing that tomorrow is Labor Day, um, I wanted to just kind of do a little interlude at the beginning here, just talking briefly about Labor Day, which might seem strange. But when we think about Labor Day, what are some things that come to mind? What are some things y'all think of when you think of Labor Day? I'm partially deaf, so come on. Food, fun, food, fun and family, right? Flags. flags, we think about flags. Someone said we don't think about church. Um, my son's got his hand raised, I can't hear him. But, you know, if you listen to secular society, what are the things that secular society thinks of when we think of Labor Day? Day off, big sales, right? You're going to get a discount on something. You know, if you go to Lowe's or Home Depot or JCPenney, your, your email inbox is probably being inundated with all kinds of stuff. You know, I realize that I can no longer wear my white leather shoes anywhere because that would be a huge... I don't have any white leather shoes. Y'all are looking at me like, what? I don't have any, so it's okay. I don't have to wear them. Well, historians tell us that Labor Day really began as a holiday in the late 1800s. And as one of the young men pointed out in Poetry Pals, said, you know, Labor Day would suggest that it's a day of labor, but it's actually the opposite. It's a day that we're supposed to have off. And because uh, back in the 1800s, the unions were fighting for uh, people to have the opportunity to be able to cut down on their work week. And so from going from an 80 to a 70 to a 60, eventually down to a 40-hour work week so that people could spend time with their families and, and rest. And so Labor Day was a day that they would gather together. People would go out on parade. And as Daryl said just a moment ago, it was about food, fun, and family. It was about, you know, they would go out in these parades and whatever your occupation was, whatever your trade was, you'd wear your, your tool belt or you'd carry whatever uh, tools that were part of your trade on parade with you. So some of you may be like, wow, that's interesting. And others are kind of looking at me like, what does this have to do with anything? Well, I'm going to get there. I always tell you all I'm going to get there. Well, the original, the original Labor Day was actually established a few years before that. Uh, if you turn in your Bible to Genesis chapter 2, I ask you to turn there with me. I'm going to put a translation up on the board for you here. John, I'm not getting it. 
I swear we worked the kinks out on this and we tried before service to get them all out and it still wouldn't go for me. So in Genesis chapter 2, verse 1 through 3, I'm reading from the HCSB. Actually, I'm not reading from the HCSB. I'll just direct your attention to the slides here because we're going to talk about this for a moment. This is, Thus the heavens and the earth and all their hosts were finished. By the seventh day, God had completed his melakah. And I'm going to explain what that is. And on the seventh day, he shabbat in all his Melakah, which he accomplished. God blessed the seventh day and Kadash it, because in it he Shabbat in all his Melakah, which God accomplished through creating. That's Genesis 2, 1 through 3. So what are those words? Melakah, it means craftsmanship. It means work. So it says God had accomplished his Melakai, his, his craftsmanship, his workmanship. You might even look into the New Testament. That's the same word as poema in the Greek. That God created this craftsmanship, his handiwork. It also, in some places, because there's a semantic range for these words, it's also in some places referred, uh, it's translated as a messenger. So malak is the same root word for that. And on the seventh day, he Shabbat, he Sabbath, God rested. He hit the pause button. God stopped. Days one through six, he established all of the things. He separated and created and established functionaries over all of the things that God had created. And the seventh day came and he Shabbat, he Sabbath, in all of his workmanship, which he had accomplished. God blessed that seventh day, and he Kadash it. He consecrated it. He dedicated that day, because in it, in that day, in that seventh day, he rested, he Shabbat, in all of his handiwork, which God accomplished through creating. So when you think about Labor Day tomorrow, think about that original Labor Day, because that's what God intended for humanity. That's what he intended for us. This eternal relational rest. That's what God had intended for us. But I think as everyone probably knows, Genesis 3 happens. But do y'all realize that Revelation 13.8 tells us the lamb that was slain before the foundation, not just of the world, as a lot of our English translations say it, because when you think of world, you think of earth. But it says the cosmos. Cosmos, like everything that God created, all of it, not just earth. It's the entire scope that when God created the entire cosmos, he created this one tiny little blue planet in the vastness of all of the cosmos, to have a place where humanity could Shabbat, where we could rest and dwell eternally in relationship with God. And as Revelation 13 tells us, the lamb was slain before that. So when we get to Genesis 3, and Adam and Eve eat of the fruit that they're told not to, the consequence of which will be that they're going to die, God's plan doesn't change. Do y'all realize that, that God's plan, it's not like God had a plan A, or that he thought about it, and then Genesis 3 happened, and God said, okay, let's scramble together and try to figure out what we're going to do now. God knew what was going to happen, and on that seventh day, he hit the pause button, and he allowed Genesis 3 to happen, and all of the covenants, all of the beautiful things, all of the beautiful signs that God established all throughout Scripture, all of his revelation was pointing towards something that was coming. 
Jesus and the cross. See, we like to think of our plan and our labor. In 3.7, what happens? Genesis 3.7. They take these leaves and they sew them together. Our labor. And we think, well, that was the end of it, right? No. In Genesis 11, there's the Tower of Babel that humanity continues to rebel against God. And they decide, we're going to ascend to the heavens, so we're going to build this huge structure that's going to take us all the way up there. We don't need you, God. We can get to the heavens on our own. We can even look in Ecclesiastes at Koheleth and all of the projects, all of the programs, and all of the, all of the things that Koheleth did with the orchards, the vineyards, the building projects. We can look today at religions like Mormonism and Scientology. We can even look at Catholicism. But in Isaiah 64, 6, it tells us that we're all unclean. That the best that we have to offer, the best of our righteousness, that God considers that to be filthy rags. And that like the leaf, we dry up and our sin, we're blown away with it. See, that's what our labor looks like. And we get to Mark chapter 2, verses 23 through 28. I'll give you just a moment to get there. Mark chapter 2, 23 through 28. This is the story where Jesus and his disciples, they're walking through the field. Mark 2, 23 through 28. And the Pharisees look and they see Jesus' disciples and they're plucking grain on the Sabbath. And they point out and they say, look what they're doing on the Sabbath. It's unlawful. It's unlawful, Jesus. How can you put up with this? And what they were really saying is because the Old Testament law said that if you work on the Sabbath, the consequence, the punishment was death. They're walking with Christ, the Lord of the Sabbath. They're walking with him, and they're reaching out, and they're plucking heads of grain. Kind of makes me picture Huckleberry Finn just taking it and plucking it and sticking it in his mouth, just walking with it. And the Pharisees are standing over there, hiding behind the rocks, and they pop up. They're just waiting. They're just looking for something. They're fault finders. Oh, Jesus, your guys are doing that wrong. They're working on the Sabbath. And Jesus looks at them, and he's like, what are you talking about? Working? They're walking with me, the Lord of the Sabbath. I want you to look at John 19, verse 30. This is Jesus. Remember we said at the beginning on that seventh day that God hit that cosmic pause button. Everything's on pause from that moment all the way up until John 19:30, all the way up into the cross. And Jesus goes to the cross and he's nailed up there. He's been scourged. Imagine the exhaustion. I'm suffering from allergies right now and my mouth is so dry. I'm talking and my tongue is sticking to the roof of my mouth and I'm trying to talk. I'm trying to preach a sermon. Jesus being scourged, walking with this cross, taking him, putting him up there on Golgotha, nailing him, blood pouring down, a thorn of crowns, and he's up there. In between the pause of Genesis 2-3, where God hits that pause button on that seventh day, 
all the way up until Jesus goes to the cross and right at his last breath, he says, the work is finished. And he releases the pause button. It's done. It's accomplished. Why are we striving? It makes me think of the Christian song, the contemporary song, why are you striving these days? We think about Labor Day tomorrow, food, family, and fun. If that's all you get out of it, what are you missing? You're no different than Koheleth. Everything that he did was for food, family, and fun. That's what it's about. What can I milk out of this life? What can I get for me? I don't have to think about God. I don't have to think about his glory. I don't have to think about the one who established the entire cosmos so that he could have eternal relationship with me. I don't have to think about that. You realize Solomon was the original deist. He, deists are the people who believe that God set creation in motion and then he just disappeared. He just wandered off somewhere. I, I set it all in motion. I did my part. Now you guys go and do your part. That was Solomon. He believes that God exists, but God has just wandered off. He's just disappeared. I don't know where you are, God. As opposed to the psalmist, likely his father David, who said, I cry out to you day and night, Lord. I cry out to you. I call out to you because without you, my life means nothing. And then you compare that, you contrast that with Koheleth. I know you're there. We just read from Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, the one who builds it labors in vain. Solomon wrote that. But he didn't live it out. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty-eight, 28, come to me all who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. I'll give you rest. See, because between the establishment of all of creation in that seventh day, and God said, he Shabbat, he paused. And then Jesus at the cross, it was finished. Come to me all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. How can he give you rest? Because he is the rest. Jesus is our Sabbath. He is our Sabbath rest. Well, that brings us to Ecclesiastes chapter 6. I want you to turn there in your Bibles. Ecclesiastes chapter 6. And the title of our sermon today is Choosing Well. Ecclesiastes chapter 6. I'm not going to read all of it. I'll just read the introduction. Here is a tragedy I have observed under the sun, sun, and it weighs heavily on humanity. God gives a man riches, wealth, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all he desires for himself, but God does not allow him to enjoy them. Instead, a stranger will enjoy them. This is futile and a sickening tragedy. A man may father a hundred children and live many years, no matter how long he lives, if he is not satisfied by the good things and does not even have a proper burial. I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For he comes in futility, that's the stillborn child, and he goes in darkness, 
and his name is shrouded in darkness. Though a stillborn child does not see the sun and is not conscious, it has more rest than he. And if he lives a thousand years twice over, but does not experience happiness, do not both go into the same place. All man's labor is for his stomach, yet the appetite is never satisfied. What advantage, then, does the wise man have over the fool? What advantage is there for the poor person who knows how to conduct himself before others? In that children's sermon, the kids' sermon just a moment ago, we talked about the difference between the wise and the foolish builders. See, the foolish, they hear, but they don't act on it. They don't put it into practice. That's Solomon. Solomon heard, and we see all throughout Ecclesiastes, he fails to put what he knows into practice. Years ago, I can't remember what I was watching or where I was, but there was a comedian, and he said, you have to be pretty bold to be an atheist, don't you? You have to be pretty bold, because as a human being with our finite senses, our finite ability to really know everything, he said, you have to be pretty bold to come to the conclusion that God does not exist. You have to be pretty bold. And he said, jokingly, have you really checked everywhere? He wasn't funny, but the point of it is, is that human beings, we lack omniscience. We think in our experience that we know all there is to know. I don't. I had a hard time with Algebra 2 in high school. People start talking about calculus and trigonometry, and I can't even say it, get to a higher level mass. I don't know. Yet you don't understand something like calculus or trigonometry, whatever it is for you that you have a hard time wrapping your brain around, but you're absolutely certain that God does not exist. How foolish. How bold of you. Human limitations. We have limited experience. We have limited perception. We have limited perspective. We have limited awareness. What if, what if when you were taking a nap, that was the time when God revealed himself? Or maybe, have you ever bothered to actually open this? Or did you already come to that conclusion? Scripture tells us that no one really seeks. No one does. No one really seeks. Not without the Holy Spirit working in us first. As I said earlier, Koheleth, he may have been the original deist. God is distant, so I'm going to do stuff. I'm going to fill my life with things. Turn, if you're in Ecclesiastes, let's turn back to chapter 1. Chapter 1 and verse 3 says, What does a man gain for all his efforts he labors at under the sun? Down here on earth in this place that God has established in all of the cosmos, and then he decided just to wander off and go on a fishing trip and leave us down here wallowing in the quagmire and filth of our own sin. What do we gain? What's the benefit for us? all throughout 1, 4, all the way to 9. The thing that we notice is these are observations that come from a man of limited perspective, limited intelligence, limited wisdom. Even though he prayed to God for it and God blessed him with it, he never applied it for the glory of God. I shouldn't say never. 
there were huge chunks of his life that he didn't apply it for the glory of God. He was limited. So we see all of these observations, and then he comes to a conclusion in 113. God has laid this heavy burden, this affliction upon humanity. That's what God's done to us. And if that's what God has done, God has laid this affliction upon us, then the way that I'm going to get back at God, go back to 1-3, what's in it for me? What's in this deal for me since God went on his fishing trip and left us? Because, Kohel, if I'm the leader of the assembly, I've looked out, I've seen all of the injustice, I see the way that people treat one another, and it's not right. And as we said last week and the week before, you're the king. You're the one who's supposed to anticipate Shiloh, the Messiah, the one who's going to come and who's going to go to the cross and he's going to set us free. God's going to release that pause button. All of the work is going to be finished. But you don't do that, do you, Koheleth? See, there's a great contrast Ecclesiastes 1.16. I want you to think about this for just a minute. The contrast and the observations. As you go through Ecclesiastes, if you'll struggle with reading this and studying it, you say, last week the pastor said that sometimes he's in the proper lane, sometimes he's in the wrong lane, and sometimes I just can't figure out which one is which. And when I was studying this week, it hit me like a ton of bricks. The times that Koheleth is observing in his flesh, says, I observed, I saw, I noticed, I observed, I saw, I thought to myself. Maybe you should stop and pray and ask God. Have you done that? Do we see that in Ecclesiastes? Do we see that in his struggles when he's saying, I went out and decided to do these things for myself. All of these projects, all these programs, all of these things, I thought to myself, I said to myself, I saw I thought to myself in 116 and 21. I thought in my heart in 212. I turned my thoughts to in 217. He reaches the conclusion I hated life. See, if that's where you're going to stop, if you're going to go down that dead end road, and God has said it is a dead end when you're pursuing the things of yourself for yourself, what's in it for me? What's the gain? What's my profit? It's a dead end. Big dead end sign up there for you. It's a dead end. So he deduced in 224, there's nothing better. Someone said just a moment ago, food, family, and fun. It's not dissimilar from the conclusion that Koheleth comes to. There's nothing better than to eat, drink, and enjoy. Really? Because if there's nothing better, folks, shouldn't we all just get up and go home? Koheleth, the leader of the assembly, the one that's been blessed with wisdom from God, then decides to check out and to milk out everything he can in life to eat, drink, and enjoy for me. Is that our testimony? I think oftentimes it is. What's going to be different about our Labor Day than our neighbor who's lost? They look over the fence in the backyard. Well, they're doing the same thing that I'm doing. They're having a barbecue. But remember we said in that golden circle principle, it's not just the what, it's the, it's the why. 
in our Sunday school classes, many times Vincent has pointed out, it's not wrong for Christians to have fun. No, it's not. In fact, we should be filled with joy because as Koheleth pointed out in 5, 19 and 20, contentment and joy, that's part of that fourfold gift of God. We've been blessed with riches and dominion and contentment and joy. That is the gift of God. In 3.19, or 3.9, I'm sorry. What is there to gain? That's where he lands. We did a whole sermon a couple of weeks ago on 3.9. What does the worker gain from his struggles? And then immediately he transitions into, I've seen the task that God has given people to keep them occupied. This is what he deduces. And then God prophetically speaks through him and shows, see if we can get this to transition. He has established everything. How do you go from just a second ago, Koela saying, what does the worker gain? What's in it for me? For my struggles, I've seen the task that God has given people, the anah, the affliction. And you would think that he's going to come up with something that sounds horrible. And then he says, the affliction that God has laid on humanity is that he's established everything as beautiful. And your brain is kind of trying to, how do you fit those together? What I've noticed, what I've seen and God speaks prophetically through him. God has established everything is beautiful in its time. Moreover, he set eternity in their hearts. So that, and we said a couple of weeks ago that this is the crux of Ecclesiastes. The reason why we struggle, the reason why we feel that things in life are vanity, that they're futile, that they're smoke, is God has established it that way so that we, in and of ourselves, cannot discover the workmanship, the poema, what God has established from beginning to end. Like Koheleth, you're going to sit there without God and you're going to think that he's gone when all you're trying to do is find out for yourself. I've seen the task that God has laid on humanity, and it's beautiful. Triumph or tragedy? This is what we talked about last week in chapter 5, those four areas that God has given to man riches, and he's given to man some have dominion over those things that God has blessed us with. And we said if you don't have dominion, you're like that person, and I just use hoarding as an example, the person who's the hoarder, they don't have dominion over their stuff. Their stuff has dominion over them. And so therefore, they have riches, but they don't have any dominion. So therefore, they can't have any contentment. And if you don't have contentment, then you can't experience joy. And where all of those areas meet together, that cross right in the middle, that is God's gift. That's God's gift. Riches, dominion, contentment, joy. But, Koheleth comes to this conclusion at this point in Ecclesiastes, it's a dead end. He says in 6, 1 and 2, here's the tragedy that I've observed. Here's the tra He just got done saying this, that I know for a fact, not I've seen, but I know, yada, I have intimate knowledge that this is God's gift. 
and then he takes his glasses of wisdom off and his vision with his heart is worse than mine without my glasses. He's blind. He goes on and he says, but here's what I've observed. This is what I know, but here's what I've observed. Here's the tragedy I've observed under the sun. God gives a man riches and wealth. You just said that. And honor. You just said that. Splendor. So that he lacks nothing. And then he goes on to say, but God does not allow him to enjoy them. How does God not allow you to enjoy the things that he's blessed you with? Isn't that the truth of our lives? God, can't you just give me that, that enjoyment? Can't you bless me? I already have. I've given you Christ. You want to find enjoyment in life? You want to find the true riches of life? It's not the car in your driveway. It's not the clothes on your back. Solomon in the New Testament is described in all his splendor, in all his glory. The lilies of the field were clothed more beautifully than he was. Why? Have you ever asked that question? Why? See, because the lilies of the field are not in rebellion. Everything that they do is for the glory of God. Everything in all of creation shouts out praise and honor and glory to you, O King, except us. We come into this world and we say, what's in it for me? What about what I want? When I wake up this morning, I'm not going to stop and pray to you, God. I'm going to think about taking a shower. I'm going to think about putting on my clothes. You know, I probably should get to that sale tomorrow because I need some new jeans. I need a new vest. I need a new dress. All this stuff is getting shabby. And Jesus says, then why are you investing in the stuff that's going to rust and the stuff that moths are going to get to? Why are you spending more time there worrying about the sale at Kohl's and J.C. Penney and what kind of deals Amazon's going to have? Why do you spend more time researching that stuff to save 50 cents than you spent this morning on your face in prayer and said, thank you. Thank you, God, for my salvation. I turned my back on you. From the time I was in my mother's womb, I was a sinner. Not when I came out. Not when I said my first bad word. Not when I was selfish for the first time. But from the very beginning, from the moment I was conceived while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. And he hung there. And he said, it's finished. And God released the pause button. Here's what I've observed, says Koheleth. It's a tragedy. And in 6.3, he comes to the conclusion, you know what? It's better to be a stillborn child than it is to be born in this world. See, that's the depravity of humanity. In our prayer meeting this morning with the table discussion leaders and the Sunday school teachers, we sat down and one of the individuals, one of the teachers in one of the classes says that someone that he talked with was talking about reincarnation, asking questions about spirituality, said that ultimately the goal of reincarnation is just to come to a place of annihilation, that you just reach this nirvana, peace, you just turn into nothingness. That's not reality. Scripture tells us 
we have a destination, an eternal destination. We've already chosen, and we chose poorly in Adam. And yet Christ again went to that cross so that through the power of the Holy Spirit, through his prompting, through the teaching and preaching of his word, through the testimony of his church, his bride, and our unity, when Jesus in John 17 prayed for the unity of his church, that's why it's one of our core values as a church, unity. Why? That is our testimony. And Coella says it's better to be a stillborn child. What advantage has the wise over the fool, he says. What advantage in 6.11? And he comes to this conclusion at the end of 6.12. Who knows what's good? Didn't you just tell us that you knew what was good, Koheleth? I've observed all this stuff, and I came to the conclusion that what's good for man, food, fun, and family, eat, drink, and be merry, that's my conclusion. And after he said that in his flesh, he says, you know what the reality is? Is I don't know. I don't know what's good for humanity. Who can tell at the end of chapter 6? Who can tell what will happen to man afterwards, after his death under the sun? I can tell you. I can tell you what's going to happen is that there's a judgment day that's coming. I'm not a fire and brimstone preacher, but there's a reality that we all have to deal with. So there is no annihilationism. We don't just disappear into cosmic unconsciousness and turn into stardust. That would be nice if you thought that's the worst possible thing that could happen is I'm just don't know anything. But that's not what scripture tells us is you're either going to spend an eternity in torment or you're going to spend an eternity in the blissful joy and grace of our Father, Son, and Spirit. That's reality. Today we're going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper. And as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, what I want you to think about is the fact that we have a decision to make, all of us, one of the things that I said when I was saved is that the danger of being in church, I've preached this before, is that familiarity breeds contempt, right? So that we as, we as mature Christians, we feel like, I've heard all of these sermons before. I've heard all this stuff. I know about salvation. I'm right with Christ because I did A, B, C, and D. Are you? Are you right with Christ? Are you right with Christ? Because as Paul asks us, he says, examine yourselves to see whether or not you're in the faith. How do you examine that? Well, Jesus would say in the parable that we looked at of the wise and foolish builder, are you listening? Have you heard what I have to say? And we all shake our heads. Yes. I've asked Jesus into my heart. I've prayed the magical prayer. Jesus, come into my heart. Be my Savior. And oftentimes pastors will say, if you prayed that prayer, the power isn't in the prayer, folks. The power is in the Savior who went to the cross. And he said, it's finished. That's where the power is. And he said, if you want to be my disciple, there's three things that you need to do. 
deny self, pick up your cross, and follow me. So today, as we prepare to celebrate the Lord's Supper, I want you to ask yourself an honest question. An honest question, not the Sunday school answer. Yeah, I've done those things, checked by box. I'm at church this morning. Have you denied self? Are you picking up your cross and are you following after him? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. There's nothing that we could ever say or ever do that would earn or merit what you did at the cross. Nothing. But you invite us into a privilege as members of your body and your bride. The, the gospel message, the word, is preached through us, not just in going, not in making disciples, but in discipling in living it out, in being your church, in doing the good works that you've prepared in advance for us to do. That's when we become your workmanship, your handiwork, your craftsmanship, your poema. See, God, you established it all in the very beginning, and then you put it on pause, and then you finished it at the cross. You finished it, and you invite us into the privilege of carrying that message and that beauty of your workmanship forward. Fill our hearts in this church, in this place, in this sanctuary. Every moment of our lives, God, fill it with your glory. Let us live lives that sing, that become psalms of who you are and who we are in you. Help us not to live dead-end lives. Help us not to look back in regret like Koheleth on days and years that have been squandered, help us to live it out today and tomorrow and until you come again. We pray these things in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen.